Thanks, Brad. Good morning, everybody. Um, if I haven't met you, like Brad said, my name is Roland. You can call me Rolls. Um, I think it's wonderful to be part of a church family where we can pray for each other and worship together and, uh, and do that. That's really cool. I'm really blessed by that. Um, it's my ple- pleasure and honor to be uh, unpacking the next part of Genesis. So if you're new with us, we've been going through a series in Genesis. We're in chapter 17 this morning and uh, really excited about it. We're going to be reading quite a chunk of chapter 17, pretty much all of it. And uh, going to be unpacking something that I really believe is on God's heart for us this morning. So... Um, before we get into that, I just want to ask you a question, and the reason why I love asking questions at Musenberg is because people answer most of the time, all right? You ask, you ask the question somewhere else, and uh, it's almost uh, it's taken as rhetorical. Um, but when you, when you hear the word power or powerful, what do you think of? Sam? Cain. King. I was like, okay. <laughs> Corporal punishment's not allowed anymore. Okay. A king, what else? V8 engine. A V8 engine, yes. Control. Okay. Anything else? When it comes to power or powerful? Authority, strength, courage. Okay, those are all different things, right? But when I think about powerful, often I think about like a bulldozer, right? So I think about an atomic bomb. I don't think about Eskim, all right? Um, but often powerful things are powerful, right? It makes sense. That's why we call them powerful. But what I've found in asking people this is very seldom do people say, hey, I am. Or I think about myself. Or I think about the Christian life. Or I think about the kingdom. And this is the thing that the Lord really put on my heart this morning that I believe we're going to draw out of chapter 17. Just five principles, we might not get to all five, but just five principles on how to experience the power of God in our lives. Because here's the thing, God has called us to kingdom living. God has given us his spirit. And if the Christian life you're living is not a life filled with power, then you're not living the fullness or in the fullness of the life God has called you to live in. The things God has called us to are things that are beyond ourselves. The things that God has called us to are spirit-filled things. They're meant to be empowered by the Spirit. They're meant to be in the power that God has given us, and our lives are meant to be different. There's no ways, as Christians, we're going to impact the world around us. It doesn't matter where it is if you're not full of the power of God and not living a power-filled life. Life. So we actually shouldn't, not in an arrogant way, but in a very real way, think about ourselves as powerful because God has promised that he would put his spirit in us. God has promised that he would empower us. God's word says that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness, and that includes the power to do what he has called us to do. And I think so many Christians are living this laid-back, mediocre life, not realizing the potential that exists for them to be stepping into things that are way beyond themselves. When we think about why the church sometimes isn't taking ground. I think it's because people don't live out this powerful kingdom life that the Lord has called us to live. So I just want to encourage you with that and call you to that. And this morning, trust that God is going to speak into your heart and they will take some of these principles away and actually live them out. Because it's got to translate into the real world. It can't just be something we speak about on a Sunday morning. But you need to leave here this morning going, there is so much more power available for me and this is how I need to tap into that. Or this is how I need to cultivate this in my life as much as it is mine to cultivate. All right, so we're going to be reading chapter 17. 
Many of us have read Genesis before, but in this passage, uh, God appears to Abram. It's not Abraham yet. He's Abram, and he appears to him as El Shaddai, right? The, the, The Hebrew word there to describe God is El Shaddai, and it's the first time that this word is used, and we'll read it just now, but it's the first time that this word is used in Genesis, right? And there's been some debate as to what the word means, but um, the word El, or the part El, El Shaddai, El means God, and then Shaddai, there's been a bit of debate around that. Some people say it refers to mountain or like refers to strength, so it means like a real strong God. God's revealing himself to, um, to Abraham as God Almighty. Some say that the word Shaddai refers to um, basically a baby being nourished by, by its mother, and so it refers to the nourishing and nurturing part of God. But either way, It's the first time that God reveals himself to Abraham like this, and it refers to an all-powerful God who's able to meet any of our needs. He's all-sufficient, a God who can do anything. Right, so that's how God reveals himself to Abraham. Yeah, and I think for a lot of us, like I said in the beginning, we need to experience God because we know him as God the Father. We know him as God our provider. We know him as God who disciplines us. We know him as the God who is with us and comforts us. But very seldom do we know God as El Shaddai, almighty and all-powerful, right? Where we experience the power of God in our lives on a daily basis. So let's read together and, uh, and we'll see what, what chapter 17 says. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. And said, I am God Almighty. That said, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, she shall not be called by her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, 
Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear you at this time next year. And that's a huge portion of scripture. And we could preach a whole series just on that chapter. There's so much meat there. But here's what we want to get into. Here's the question I want to ask. What principles do we get out of that chapter that teach us how to experience the power of God on a continuing basis in our lives? The first principle comes out of chapter or verse 1 and 2. Right? And, and right up front it says here, when, when Abraham was 99 years old, God appears to him and gives him this amazing promise. In fact, it, 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 it's a promise that's so, there's a big word, incredulous. It's so unbelievable, Abraham laughs. But in his laughing, he doesn't not believe God. Because in Romans chapter 4, it says, and Abraham believed God, and so it was accredited to him as righteousness. And so Abraham laughs at the impossibility of it, yet still in that, believes God. He goes, God, this is an impossible thing for you to do. How can I father a child? I don't know how many of you have heard about a 99-year-old man fathering a child and a 90-year-old woman falling pregnant in our day and age, right? Even back then, it was one of those laughable things. They were so old. But Abraham laughs because God gives him this promise, yet still in receiving this promise, he believes God. And so the first thing we need to realize is that if we're going to be experiencing the power of God in our lives, if we're going to be taking ground as God's people, you cannot, principle one, you cannot and must not discount God's ability to do the impossible. We serve a miracle-working God. Our God is a God who does the impossible. If you write him off from doing the things that are impossible for you to do, you're not going to be experiencing the power of God the way you meant to because you're not going to be going to him with the things that you meant to be going to him with. We say stuff like, how can God really turn or fix this situation? How can God really fix this country and bring reconciliation to this land? How can God change that person's heart? How is it possible for me to be able to do that or step into that space? Or how can God use somebody like me? These are questions that we ask ourselves all the time. And because we ask those questions, what we end up doing is settling for second best or third best or fourth best. We land in spaces like this. We just give up. We stop praying. We don't even take it to God. Or we end up accepting the status quo. We go, I've been praying for so long. It just, it's just so impossible. And, and so I'm just going to accept it. And I'm just going to not do anything more about it. And I, I want to say, I really believe that's a space that the enemy wants us to be in. God's people to be in a place where we just give up praying, give up pressing in, give up trusting God and the fact that he can do the impossible. It's one of these things that I think we need to really start living in as God's people again is in faith, knowing that our God can bring down the walls of Jericho. He can split to the seas. We can walk through on dry land. He can provide manna from heaven. And whatever that means for us now in this day and age, we need to be able to believe that God can do that. Right? It's one of the things that we need to do in order to experience the power of God. Then that's, that's not to say that God doesn't work in the mundane. God does work in the mundane. He's constantly working. He's working in the smallest and minutest of details all the time where we don't even see it. But God often brings imme immeasurably more greatness and glory to his name when he, when he moves through the impossible. And we need to start trusting him for that. 
Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 19, he said, when he's busy explaining to them how impossible it is for a person to be saved, how impossible it is for a rich man to be saved. And, and then his disciples respond a little bit despondently. They go, well, then, well, then who can be saved? Right? If, 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 if it's impossible to be saved, who can be saved? And then Jesus responds with this profound statement. He says, with man, it is impossible. It is impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. And if we're going to be stepping into a place where we're used by God the way that God intends us to be used as His people, as kingdom people, we've got to trust that the things we are called to do are impossible for us. Yet God, with Him, it's possible. And so as we walk hand in hand with Him, we trust Him to do those things that are impossible for us to do. If you think about your salvation, it's the most incredible miracle you've personally experienced where God brought someone that wasn't bad and made them good. He took someone that was dead and made them alive. He took you from the prison of darkness and put you into the kingdom of righteousness. And that in and itself should be a testimony to you that God can do the impossible. Now, I don't say this just because I'm preaching and I just want to like buffer the sermon, but if, if God can save me, he can do anything, right? If, if God could save me, if you knew me years before I was saved, and the person that I am now, there's still a lot of work for God to do. But where I am now, doing what I'm doing and living the life that I'm living was an impossibility for me 20 years ago. And I just want to say, if God can do that for us, he can do anything. Paul, in Romans chapter 4, he's quoting from Genesis 17. And he says this, as it is written, he has the part from Genesis 17, I have made you the father of many nations. And then Paul says this, he says, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. God is the God who calls things that are not as if they are. And we need to remember that always. The second principle comes also from verses 1 and 2. But a different part. God says this to Abraham. He says, walk before me and be blameless. If we're going to be experiencing the power of God in our lives, principle number two, we need to be walking blamelessly before the Lord. And I think this is something that the church gets wrong a lot of the time. This is what Christians get wrong a lot of the time. Firstly, we misunderstand blameless. Blameless doesn't mean sinless. It doesn't mean perfect. And so we, we err on the side of trying to be perfect before God and then become legalistic and self-righteous. And so grieve the Spirit and grieve the Spirit of grace. And we end up like the Galatians who try and earn favor with God. Or we go to the opposite side. We go completely to the left. We become so liberal in our faith and we start to marry the world with our supposed love for God. And there's no real difference. It's, it's marred and we don't really look like a Christian. And then we end up like those guys um, in Laodicea in Revelation where, where Jesus says, man, I wish you were either a really nice cold frappe on a hot summer day or a really hot cup of coffee on a summer's night. But because you're lukewarm, you're neither of those things, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. This word blameless means not to be perfect, but it means to be wholly devoted to. It means to be solely devoted to. It means to be single-hearted towards something. And so when God calls Abraham, he says to him, I'm going to do this thing through you, but make sure that you serve no other gods. Make sure that at the epicenter of your life is me. Walk blamelessly before me. When believers walk faithfully before the Lord their God, when we live in humility and repentance and we come before God with fear and trembling, knowing that He is God Almighty, and we don't take it lightly that we can enter into that holy place, and we don't take it lightly that He's the one who's given Himself for us, and yet He's the maker of the heavens and the earth, 
we will experience the grace and the power of God in our lives in ways we haven't before. See, it's a humble and contrite heart that God desires. Arrogance and pride, God will break. And like a good father, God disciplines those he loves. He doesn't encourage dis- or disobedience and bad behavior. So God's not going to reward you with power when we're living lives of disobedience. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, it says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts are blameless before him. Perhaps in our lives we need to come to a place, and perhaps as a church we have to come to a place and go, actually we need to repent of the stuff that I'm doing in my life. Some of that stuff that I've kept in the back closet. Some of the stuff that I've swept under the rug. And I thought somehow it wasn't going to affect the way that I live and the, and the way that I experience God. I don't know if you remember the story of Achan um, and God's people as they, as they moved against the city of Ai in the promised land. God had said, don't take anything for yourself from the nations that you conquer. And what happened was Achan and his family took some stuff and they hid it. And when they went up against the city of Ai, the whole of the Israelite army were destroyed. Well, not all of them, but they were defeated. And they lost against Ai. And, jo- and Joshua goes and he falls on his face before the Lord and he's lamenting. And God comes to him and says, lift your face up out of the sand. Get your face up out of the dust. Dust yourself off and deal with the sin in the camp. And what happened was God, through a process of elimination, led them to the family of, of Achan. And, and they, got, they got stoned. They got put to death for what they did. Women, children, Achan, everything got put to death. And after that was dealt with, God's people went against Ai again and they had victory against that city. I don't think it was because the Israelites were weak the first time. It's because God's hand was not upon them. Because people had sinned. And here's the principle don't think that your sin is a sin in a vacuum, that you, your sin just affects one part of you or just you. When you bring sin into the family of God, it affects all of us. There could be massive amounts of experience in the kingdom of God together, yet people bring sin and we, we entertain sin and we don't repent and we don't deal with the stuff in our lives and we live ungodly lives and you affect God's people. And so we need to again with reverence come before God and go, God, I want to submit this to you. And in your personal life as well, just because you sin at home behind closed doors doesn't mean it doesn't affect the workspace and the sports field and the family environment. You deal with that stuff in your life and God will show you breakthrough. We need to be humble before the Lord, repent of our sin. It's the same Psalms. David says this, if I cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And the book of James says a double-minded man, this is what won't come up on the screen, but a double-minded man, a person not living in faith, is not someone who's going to receive anything from God. There's this principle of having to walk blamelessly before the Lord. The next principle, sorry, last one on this, actually, I just want to read this, I think it's really powerful, but Joshua 3, verse 5, Joshua says to the people, just before they take over the promised land, Joshua says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do a new thing, and I think we need to come back to that place where we go, Lord, yes, there's grace, yes, there's forgiveness, no, I don't earn my salvation, yes, I'm forgiven, but actually, I want to walk with fear and trembling before you, actually, I want to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, because I know that a holy God has set me free, and a holy God has cleansed me, and I don't take that lightly. And I come to you and I ask for clean hands and a pure heart. So David says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. And I think we need to position ourselves like that daily before the Lord. If we're going to experience in the power of God corporately together, 
and in, as individuals, as we walk out our individual walks with the Lord, because tomorrow the Lord would do a new thing. I think that's a prophetic word for our church and for our city and for our country. God is going to do a new thing, but only when his people mobilize themselves, only when his people start to consecrate themselves, and we look different to the world around us. We are so apologetic for being different. Inclusivity is one of those big catchphrases nowadays. It's this in thing, this vogue thing. We've got to be inclusive, man. God's people are exclusive. We are different, and we are set apart for His glory, for His name, for His fame. And I think we need to start living that way again. Next principle from verses 5 and 6 and 15 and 16. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And then he does the same thing with Sarai. He says, as for Sarai, your wife, she shall not be called by her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, in the Western world, we have names, obviously. But very few people I've found know the meaning of their name. Right? Um, I might be wrong about the Musenberg congregation. Right? Am I wrong? Okay. No. You, you will know the meaning of your name, and I'll tell you why. I'll get you it. Right? But in the Western world, we're consumed with names, and very seldom, right, very seldom do people in the Western culture know the meaning of their names because that's not part of our culture. Now, again, that's the general statement, right? I'm big into names. I love the meaning of names, and there are plenty of cultures in our country who name their children according to the meaning of their names. So I grew up in the Eastern Cape. I was immersed in the Klosa culture there. I've got a friend named Siavuya, right? Siavuya, that's Klosa for we are happy, right? Siavuya, we are happy, Siavuya, and his parents were happy when he was born or when they conceived, right? So that's why they get given that name. Bongani is a Zulu name, which means be grateful. Tandiwe is a closer name, which means beloved, right? So we name people sometimes in certain cultures according to the meaning of the name. And this was very much the same for Hebrew culture back in the day. A person was given a name by their parent, and it often had to do with circumstances surrounding their conception or their birth or the, or, or, or the foreseeable future for this child, a projection of their life. They've been named for that reason. And it's the reason why uh, we believe God gave the names to us for our children that man and I have. David means beloved and, and Abigail means the father's joy. For us, names were the most important thing. Right? Was the, most, well, the meaning of the name was the most important thing. And biblically speaking, for God, it's the same thing. Names have got meaning. They're not divorced from their name. And I think it's got to do with the fact that when you speak a person's name, you speak the meaning of that name over them. I don't want to be super spiritual or weird here, but I really do think there's significance in naming someone and the meaning of that name being something powerful. And not everybody lives up to the meaning of their names, especially if it's a great one, right? But God was big into names. And so he changes Abraham's name to mean something that spoke about his future, and so God exerts this authority and the sovereignty over him because he's God and goes, listen, I'm going to change your name and I'm going to make that name mean something. That name means something. And I wanted to remind you that this is what I've done in you and this is the way I'm taking you and this is what I want to speak over your, your life and everyone to speak over your life when they speak your name. He does the same with Sarah. He renames them and, and, and the meaning of their name changes to fit in with the call that God has on them. As a couple. But there's also more to the name change that meets the eye. And this is what I want to get to in this point. And it's not going to stand out again to us, but it would have stood out to ancient Hebrew culture. It would have stood out to them like a sore thumb. Because God adds the breath sound, right? the hey sound to Abraham and Sarah. 
he adds that or that sound which in the Hebrew culture represented the Spirit, and it stood for the Spirit of God, right? The Hebrew word for the Spirit of God is the Ruach of God, and that was represented by the hey sound. And so he adds it straight into the middle of Sarah's name and straight into the middle of Abraham's name. Why? Because as a reminder to them that it was the Spirit of God that did this. And so whenever you spoke Abraham's name, you're reminded that the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God was the one who caused them to be pregnant and was there and was what made possible the power for that pregnancy to happen and for that to go to term and for that baby to be born healthy. It was the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God at work within them that caused their destinies to change and their life track to change. And so the principle for us is this. If we're going to be experiencing the power of God, we need to be filled constantly with the Spirit of God in our lives. And I think when we speak about the Spirit of God, we need to just touch on two things. One, there's also confusion around this. There is Holy Spirit person and there is Holy Spirit power. And ministering to young people often, they go, Roland, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God again? Does the Holy Spirit leave me? And it sounds like a silly question, but a lot of people ask that. Even mature Christians go, what does it mean to ask God again to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And I think we misunderstand the difference between Holy Spirit person and Holy Spirit power. The Holy Spirit is given to you at the day of your conversion. When you came to know Jesus for the first time genuinely, the Holy Spirit, God's Word says, was put in you as a deposit and a guarantee of things to come. And you don't get half the Holy Spirit. You don't get a quarter of the Holy Spirit. You don't get a junior Holy Spirit. You get 100% of the person of God, who is the Holy Spirit, and He comes to dwell within you, right? We see this in Acts. We see this all over the place where the Spirit descends on Jesus. We're going to get into that just now, but the person of the Spirit comes to fill us. But then you get Holy Spirit power, and most of the time, people are confused by this, this is what we speak about when we speak about being filled again. We're speaking about being filled with the power of the Spirit. And, and some examples of this are like Luke chapter 4. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Spirit, is led by the Spirit into the Jordan, or after he's baptized in the Jordan, into the wilderness to be tempted. And then right at the end of that passage or that chapter, it says, Jesus then returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So he's led by the Spirit and then exits the desert in the power of the Spirit, and it's only after that that he starts his earthly ministry. See, Jesus receives the person of the Spirit, but then experiences the power of the Spirit. There's this infilling, and some say it was because of the tempting and the testing and the fasting and the praying, and I think spiritual disciplines have got a lot to do with receiving the power of the Spirit in our lives, but not the person. Luke chapter 8, Jesus was on his way. The crowds were almost crushing him, and, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter turns to his master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. In other words, Jesus, that's a real stupid question, because everyone is crushing you. Everyone's touching you. What do you mean, who's touching you? And then Jesus simplifies it for them and goes, I don't mean touching me as in physically touching me. I mean touching me with faith. And I know that someone touched me with faith. Why? Because power has gone out from me. Now that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit has left Jesus. It means that Holy Spirit power has left Jesus. I think a lot of Christians are walking around with the person of the Holy Spirit because God has promised to give that to you. But we very seldom experience the power of the Spirit. Maybe once or twice. 
Maybe every now and then, but very seldom do we go back to the feet of Jesus and go fill me with more of that. It's like a tap that gets turned on and off. There's, there's water in the pipelines, but you need it to be opened, and there needs to be a flow of power, like there was from Jesus that day. And often people go, when I read it, I can't understand why Jesus would, after a long day of ministry and a long night of ministry, go and spend the whole night praying again. You're like, go and sleep. Go and eat some food. Go to the wimpy, get a burger, get some coffee, and rest. But Jesus knows that what's so important to his ministry is this flow of power. And so when power leaves him through ministry, he goes back to the feet of the Father and asks for more. And asks for more power. And then he ministers and power leaves him. And he goes back to the feet of the Father and he asks for more. And I think God has done this to make us dependent on him. We're not an island. God has made us so that power flows from us and through us. And then we go back to the feet of Jesus and we say, Lord, please grant me more for the glory of your name. And I believe when we pray that in faith, God gives you more power. And you can feel it. You know it. It's a tangible, you know the power of God is in you to be at work, to heal people, to raise them from the dead, to be involved with the salvation of somebody and the restoration of somebody, the, the deliverance of someone from demons and demonic influence. God is at work in our lives and we know it. And we need that in our lives as well. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, I'm going to do one more point after this. Chapter, we'll go to point number 5. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has granted us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. So God symbolizes that truth for Abraham and Sarah by positioning the hey sound in the middle of their name and going, just remember that when you speak your name, it's always a reminder of the fact that the Spirit of God is intimately at work there. Right? And for a lot of us, we don't know that about that name change. It's not just about the meaning. For the ancient Hebrew people, it would have been like, wow, the Spirit of God, literally the word that is reference or the syllable that's reference to the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God is inherently placed in their name. It's there to remind you. And I think we need a reminder every day for ourselves as well. I'll just mention what point four was. I think point four, in order to experience the power of God in our lives, we need to have a revelation of our weakness, which is why God speaks to Abraham so much about circumcision. Circumcision wasn't just a symbol of the covenant God had made. It was a reminder to Abraham that he had tried to fulfill the promise of God in his own way. Remember Ishmael? He tried to do it in his own strength and he failed. And circumcision was always going to be a reminder to Abraham and generations after him that your flesh is weak and you can't do this thing, only God can. Because sometimes you can get to a place where we, we, accomplish, we accomplish things for God, but we think we're the champions of that. That we're the ones who brought that about because of our own greatness, our own power, our own goodness. And there's a self-righteousness that brews, arrogance and pride. And God reminded Abraham through circumcision and every other male after him, hey, your flesh is weak. You need to cut that away and allow the Spirit of God to do work in your life. And so that was point number four. Point number five. To experience the power of God, we must be others-focused. Two greatest commands. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the prophets are summed up in those two commands, God's Word says. Abraham, it says, when God gave him the promise prayed and asked that God would bless Ishmael. Now, he doesn't pray that because he doesn't believe God is going to do what he's going to do through Sarah. Remember, we've already established this. Remember, Sarah laughed and Sarah got rebuked. Abraham laughs and God doesn't rebuke Abraham. He just says, no, I'm not going to honor that prayer the way that you want me to. I'm going to bless Isaac. 
Ishmael I will bless as well. I've heard you and I will bless him. God didn't hate Ishmael. But he chose in his sovereignty to establish the promise to the line of Isaac. Because that was a miraculous thing that happened there. But in receiving the promise from God, Abraham prays for his son Ishmael. And it shows a heart that desires other people to be blessed. Abraham had got so much and was going to receive so much from God. Yet in the midst of that, he doesn't ask for more. He prays for somebody else and says, God, I oh, won't you bless them. And God does bless him. God does bless him. I think we live in this day and age where we are so self-centered and narcissistic sometimes. We just think about ourselves. And when it comes to time, talent, and treasure, all these things that God has given us, your time, what you're gifted with, the money that you have, whether you think you have enough or a lot or not, doesn't matter. What you've been given is a grace gift from God, and we need to be using that to bless other people as well if we're going to be experiencing the power of God in our lives. That's James chapter 4, 2 to 3 says this, You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. But when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. We are so good at trying to like use reverse psychology on God. And we actually think it's going to work. Lord, give me that extra money and you know I'll give some to the church. Would you try and you try and manipulate your heart and make yourself believe that you'll become this huge philanthropist if you win the lotto, right? Just give me the 150 million rand and Lord, I'll be the biggest blessing to all the people in the world. The reality is if you're not using what you've already got to bless people, you won't no matter how much more you've got because it speaks about a heart condition, right? It speaks about a heart condition. If you're not doing well in the job that you have and the responsibilities that you have, God's not going to give you more to prove yourself unworthy there. If you're unworthy in the small things, you're going to be unworthy in the big things. And I think Abraham reveals his heart. He goes, yes, God, I just want other people to be blessed. This thing is so great, but just for other people. And it's also true when he's with Lot. He says, hey, Lot, you know what? It's rightfully mine to choose whatever land I want. But you know what? You have the first choice. You, you take the first choice, although it was rightfully Abraham's pick of the lot, right, pardon the pun, right, there was a whole bunch of fighting and, and bickering in the church when James is writing to the church, which led to wars and murder and a whole bunch of corruption in the church, and, and James says, hey, you're not going to get what God has for you, you're not going to walk in the power, experience the power of God if you don't sort this stuff out, and so I think our prayers need to be, God, thank you for the blessings that I have, but, but please bless my family. Lord, please bless the church. Bless, bless my neighbor. Bless this nation. Bless my enemy. I want to pray for them and, and genuinely mean God's blessed and God's blessing for them. Those are, those are the four things or five things that I, just, I feel like we get out of chapter 17 that are going to, uh, are principles that we need to be walking in and cultivating in our lives and, and remembering on a daily basis so that we can experience the power of God. Because as a Christian, you're supposed to be living a powerful life. You're supposed to be living a life filled with power. And that's not health, wealth, and prosperity preaching. The more you step into this power, chances are the more you're going to be persecuted. The more you step into this power, the chances are the more opportunity you're going to have to minister the, for the kingdom of God, but the more the enemy is going to hate that that's happening. And so this isn't life's going to become easy. This is life as tough as it is, but we need to be stepping into the power that God has for us. And we need to be people who are kingdom people and kingdom minded. All right, let's pray. 
Father, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to honor you, God, for its truth, its richness, its depth. Lord, and the fact that it speaks right through to our hearts, it, it speaks into our souls. And Lord, I pray that as, as a seed was sown this morning, that you would water that, that you would cultivate that, that it would grow and bear kingdom fruit for you in Jesus' name. I, I pray that we would be Christians who live out these principles and who daily experience a supernatural empowering and infilling of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, may our workplaces be changed. May our city be changed, our schools, our churches even, in Jesus' name. For the glory of your name, Lord. Amen.